So the reading is from Daniel chapter 1, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were all in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome tonight Paul Hewlett. Paul is now the pastor and minister of his church in Shrewsbury. We very much look forward to his talk. He's titled his talk the title of the whole lecture series, Confidence in the Truth. Well, I had three aims in mind as I began to prepare this lecture. 
And uh, these three aims, I hope, are still applicable now as, as I begin this evening. I hope that what I've got to say will be, in the first place, informative, so we know and understand the mind of God as it's revealed in His Word. Uh, that I would be realistic, that we're under no illusions as to the challenges which face God's people at this present hour, but also encouraging that the Lord would bring comfort and hope to us all here this evening. The reason I chose the title Confident in God's Truth was because it was the title of the lectures. I had no other idea at the time as to what it might be, and it was vague enough to go with uh, five or six weeks ago. But um, I narrowed it a bit, having thought a little more about it. One of Francis Schaeffer's best-known books is entitled How Should We Then Live? Some of you will have come across that and be familiar with that. And I want to adapt that a little bit this evening and uh, entitle the lecture and ask the question, how should we then think? Which isn't original, I realize, but how should we then think? In particular, what should our attitude and our conduct be as God's people towards the world in which we live right now here in Britain in the early 21st century? And in a sense, my departure point would be the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself as he was praying the great high priestly prayer of John 17. You remember he, he prayed that great prayer on the night before he was uh, betrayed, arrested. And he, he said in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them, my people, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And... Maybe if when we became Christians we were all taken up out of this world like Enoch and Elijah were, eventually it would be rather, rather nice for us all, wouldn't it? We could, wouldn't have to face all the struggles and difficulties and uh, all the problems of this present life. But Christians are still in the world. The Lord has seen fit to leave us in the world. We have to work out our salvation here on earth. We, as Christians, walk a kind of tightrope, don't we? We're in the tension that lies between the now and the not yet. We are saved, we are justified, but we are not yet perfectly holy in our whole being, though one day we will be. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, but we are still dwelling on earth. We're citizens of heaven. That's where we belong. That's our true home. But we're also citizens of the United Kingdom or whatever country we happen to belong to. And I want us to think about these areas tonight and to be confident of God's truth as to how we should live and think in this present world. Now, I don't want to give a lecture specifically about church-state relations. That may be a relief to many of you. It's a, it's a vast area. It's uh, a very complex area. It might result in all sorts of uh, extended question times at the end that nobody would benefit from. So I don't want to do uh, too much on that. I want to paint with fairly broad brushstrokes this evening and talk about how we as God's people, as the Church of Jesus Christ, should live and think about the world and the state in which we live in fairly general terms. So let me begin with that. What can we say is true about both the church and the state? 
Well, both are established and founded and governed by God himself. We see the development of both of them throughout the scriptures. We can begin with the church. The church has its initial conception. Just as soon as a gracious God begins to speak words of mercy and salvation and promise to a fallen race. And the church then grows and develops as the godly line of Adam, the line of Seth, begins to call upon the name of the Lord. As God shows saving mercy to Noah and his family. And then as God calls Abram and promises him and his offspring great and eventually worldwide blessing. The church continues to grow as the line of Abraham grows and multiplies and they become a great nation in the land of Egypt. Then of course they are redeemed from the land of Egypt. They are given the law of God. They are taught how to worship God aright. They are told that they will be a nation of priests who will display the character of God before the whole world. And then in the fullness of time, when Jesus the Messiah comes, born of a woman, born under the law, the church reaches its maturity. Jesus is born, he lives, he is crucified, he is raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and he then sends the promised Holy Spirit. And Jesus the Christ, the one proclaimed by heaven to be both Lord and Christ, is preached among all the nations believed on in the world. And this, what Paul calls the great mystery of godliness, is entrusted to the church to make that saving message known throughout the whole world. The church is God's creation and God's establishment. But so too is the state. We need to understand that. Let's think about the state for a short time. Adam is given stewardship over the whole earth. Creation ordinances are established which are to be kept perpetually by all the earth's inhabitants. Marriage and work and the Sabbath, the subduing of the whole creation. These are then enlarged, you remember, after the flood. There's legislation, for example, given to Noah in the case of murder. And in the wilderness, Israel are given laws that apply to them not simply as, as it were, a church, but as the state. And in the New Testament, this is the point, it is shown very clearly that every state, not only Israel, but every state under heaven, is an agency, is a structure which God has established. And the classic statement of this, of course, is found in Romans 13. If you'd like to turn to Romans 13, you could do that. And I'll just read a few verses from the beginning of Romans 13, verses 1 to 4. A familiar verse, uh, passage to many of us, I think. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, 
be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And we need to understand and maintain that the state and every state of every color and every kind and every type, as it were, is God's establishment. In the uh, Reformation period, there was what was called the Radical Reformation. And there were men around that time who were saying, well, the state has nothing to do with us as Christians. We can ignore it. It's not of God in the way at all, as it were. And that is quite wrong. But we need to ask a question, I think, at this point. What are the responsibilities of the state? Indeed, what exactly do we mean by the state? Because the state can vary enormously in its size and in its character. Back in the, uh, I won't say the good old days, I'll say the different old days. Um, they were good, <laughs> they were different as well. When I was teaching at Emmanuel College, I used to give a series of lectures to year nine students, I don't know if they're still given now, um, on contemporary ethical issues. And one of those lectures was, was on the whole matter of government. And I would put up on a big PowerPoint screen in the lecture theater a number of words ending in either crassy, C-R-A-C-Y, or archy, A-R-C-H-Y. And I would say to the students, can you identify the odd one out? There's one here which is an odd one out. And I would go through them, and they were words such as monarchy, democracy, plutocracy, oligarchy, aristocracy, anarchy, meritocracy. And the challenge was, which is the odd one out? Anarchy? Yeah, anarchy is the right answer. Because anarchy means no government. And forms of government can vary, and legitimate forms of government can vary. The only unlawful form of government, it seems, from Scripture is no government, no rule. And as you know, the great problem in the days of the judges was that in those days there was no king in Israel. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. It's not simply that there was no king, there was no ruling authority of any kind in Israel. Monarchy may be what we see in the Old Testament for a variety of reasons, but it's not the only proper form of rule. A country may be a republic, have some other kind of constitution, and still be equally lawful. Democracy is not the highest and best form of rule in any and every situation. I think many of us would agree that the idea of trying to introduce democracy in Afghanistan overnight is very, very muddled indeed. Uh, I think Churchill said something like this on one occasion, democracy is the worst form of government of all except for every other one which has been tried from time to time. And we get his point there, don't we? God has instituted and commanded rule, whatever form that rule might take. There can be big government, there can be small government. And I think we would say that at the moment, and perhaps increasingly in our own situation, government is big and is growing. There is central government, and there is local government. And then there are those in authority in a variety of organizations. There are police, there are law courts, there are local authorities, there are schools, there are various community groups, and you could carry on with those, couldn't you? 
And if you wanted to ask the question, what do we mean by the state? We could ask a parallel question. Who or what are all the bodies and agencies in our country today which command power and influence? And it could be applied very directly to folk in the Christian Institute. With whom do the Christian Institute have dealings of any kind? It's not only with central government in Westminster, is it? It goes far beyond that. And some agencies act as if they were branches of government and are even regarded by the general public as if they were. Classic case. Last Friday, as we all know, was Children in Need Day. So folk go to work wearing spotty and stripy pyjamas or onesies. You know what a onesie is? But am I some kind of social dropout or pariah if I don't put a bandana around my head on the third Friday in November and dress up as Pudsey Bear? Because the BBC say that it's Children in Need Day. Now, it's not, it's not a bad thing necessarily. I'm not having a go at the BBC at this particular point. I'm just saying, <laughs> oh, no. I'm just saying that sometimes organizations can punch above their weight and command a kind of... Uh, totalitarian authority in people's minds. Now, this is the point then that we come to with the state. Government, the state, and all of these bodies, whatever we choose to call them, they are under the authority of God, no less than the church. Under the authority of God. It's a striking thing in Romans 13, that those who represent the governing authorities, the powers that be, are called the servants of God. Whoever they are, whether we voted for them, whether they seized power in a military coup, whether they are tyrannical dictators, whether they are utterly godless, bloodless rulers, they are accountable to God. Something that they don't realize increasingly. Even in the Old Testament, the nations round about Israel and Judah were addressed by prophets like Amos and Isaiah. Although they were not part of God's covenant people, they were still judged for their sins, and in particular, the rulers of those nations were held accountable by God. That's true of the state. Now, let me make another point about the church, however, at this point. There are very great, special, unique privileges which belong to the church and which do not belong to the state. Nor do they belong to the family, not even to a Christian family or to any other organization, even excellent organizations. There are great and special privileges and titles that belong to the church. The church alone is called the body of Christ. The church alone is the bride of Christ. The church is God's temple, God's field, God's building. The church is the Israel of God. I don't want to get into deep water this evening. Someone might ask the question, surely there's more to the kingdom of God than simply a collection of local churches. And the answer is the kingdom of God is exceedingly wide and ultimately encompasses the whole cosmos and will do. However, at the very heart and the focus, the kingdom of God is, is located in the church of Jesus Christ. 
the Bible always speaks of the church as God's redeemed people, and it does so in the most exalted terms. The Westminster Confession, chapter 25, paragraph 2, says something that some of us might raise our eyebrows at, where it says there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside the church. Not the Roman Catholic Church, but the Reformed Biblical Evangelical Gospel Church. And for these reasons, we have to be very careful how we distinguish the two realms of church and state. A Christian belongs to both of these realms. He may indeed hold office and responsibility and authority in both of these realms, but they are quite distinct. A man may be an elder in a church, and at the same time a CEO in a, in a business corporation, but these two roles must never be confused. They are entirely distinct. When they are confused, then all manner of conflicts and tensions are going to arise. Let me take it a bit further. There is no such thing properly understood as a Christian nation. I'm not entirely sure you can apply the adjective Christian to very many things at all, actually. You can have Christian people, Christian church. I'm not sure whether you can have a Christian painting or a Christian sculpture or a Christian coffee shop. I don't know. That's an area we might debate later on. But there have been times in the past, aren't there, where... Um, England, Scotland, United States, other nations have seen themselves as, a, as an elect nation. A nation covenanted to God apart from every other nation on earth. And that can lead to all manner of abuses. It has in some cases led to a kind of white supremacy in South Africa or in the United States. It is clear from Scripture that the church of Jesus Christ is the only elect nation and chosen people. Israel under the old covenant were addressed in those terms, Exodus 19, a nation of priests, a holy people. And then Peter, as you may know in 1 Peter, he uses the same categories to describe the church, the worldwide church of God. So we need to maintain in our mind that although Christians belong to both realms, the realms must never be mixed or confused. And so the next big question which we are bound to ask is this, how do these realms and how should these two realms influence one another? And in answering that question we are immediately into quite hotly debated territory. In Britain, there is an established church, which there isn't in the United States. Among, for example, Presbyterians on either side of the Atlantic, and among evangelicals on this side of the Atlantic, there would be disagreement about what is called the establishment principle and the role of the civil magistrate. And it could be very easy to say, well, there's so many differences of opinion, there's no point in really saying anything at all positive, but I think we can say a few things and must say a few things here this evening. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul, who has in the first chapter spoken of his own astonishing conversion and 
election to be an apostle, uh, begins to direct Timothy in the matters of the church in Ephesus where Timothy is serving the Lord. And he writes these words, a well-known passage once more, 1 Timothy 2 from verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What is the first thing that Paul commands Timothy to do and to set in order in the church in Ephesus? He says he requires that prayers be made for those in authority. Why? Is it for the individual conversion and salvation of that particular ruler? So if we pray for Her Majesty the Queen, are we particularly praying for her salvation? If we're praying for the governments in Westminster and, or elsewhere, are we praying for the salvation of those individuals that make up those governments? Well, it isn't that we are not to pray for their conversion. But it is far more this. We are to pray that God would enable those authorities by his all-powerful common grace to rule in such a way that Christians may lead a peaceful and a quiet life. Why? Because those are the conditions that are most favorable and conducive for Christians to adorn the gospel by their godly living, to meet in order to worship God without persecution, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to plant churches and to disciple believers far and wide without let or hindrance. In that sense, we are to pray that the state might be a servant of the church. We ought not to think that the church is under the authority of the state. Both are under the authority of God. Both have clearly defined roles. But we are to pray for the state that we are in, that the conditions might prevail for the peaceful, speedy conditions for the spread of the gospel, for the growth of the church, for the free proclamation of Jesus Christ. And it seems to me that if there is one great principle for which Christians must work and seek and contend and pray, it is the continuation of the freedoms that we do still have to proclaim the gospel as we do. I know that there have been street preachers arrested in the last few weeks in various high-profile cases. I'm utterly aware that what is called freedom of speech, which is such a slogan, is increasingly being 
attacked and undermined uh, from those who proclaim free speech. But I also know, and you all know too, that we are not yet as North Korea is, or as Syria is, or as Iran is, and many other nations. And the fact that we can meet here this evening, and I can say these things to you and open the Bible, and there's no molestation from secret police or anybody spying on us to outlaw our meetings as yet, is a blessing we should be grateful for. Well, I come to another question, many questions tonight, and hopefully answers as well. And this is a reasonable question. If there are these two realms of church and state, how do they work together? Other than the fact that we may pray for the state and should pray for the state and for leaders. Do they get on with separate lives, minding their own business, living side by side, but never communicating with each other at all? Just how should the church relate to the state? The way I would come at this is to say, think of it like this. How do you as a Christian living in your home relate to your next door neighbor? And the answer is that there are many answers to that question, depending on all sorts of circumstances. If we were to go around the room and say, what is your relationship with your next door neighbor? As far as matters of Christian truth are concerned, we would have a, a wide spectrum of answers. A Christian may be on very good and happy and positive terms with his or her next door neighbor and be able to even speak to them about the gospel in a very free uh, fashion. It may be that your neighbor is hostile and suspicious and negative and fearful. And my point is that we would find that same kind of variation and fluctuation in the relationship between the church of Jesus Christ and the state wherever that state happens to be, from time to time, and across the world. But we would agree on one thing, wouldn't we? Surely. We'd agree on this. We would seek for wisdom, for that relationship, to be peaceful and harmonious, because peace and harmony are pleasing to God. And peace and harmony in our relationships may in time lead to a respectful hearing of the gospel and an engagement in biblical truth and then in time a demonstration of God's character and God's goodness. And this principle applies wherever we happen to be, whether we're in 21st century Britain or in 21st century America or 21st century Syria where the conditions vary so much. We stand in need of godly wisdom now you've all been wondering, I know, why uh, we heard from the first chapter of Daniel at the beginning of the meeting and well, I've said nothing at all about Daniel until now. Well, here I'm going to come to Daniel. I asked for Daniel chapter one to be read because in Daniel we see exactly the kind of wisdom that we're talking about. I've been preaching through Daniel recently uh, on Sunday mornings so these things are fairly fresh in my memory and they, and they move me and excite me and I pray they'll excite and, and thrill you as well. Daniel was a youth. Daniel was probably in his early teens. We don't know how old exactly. But he and his friends had their lives turned 
upside down, back to front, inside out, whatever else you want to describe. They were seized from Jerusalem and from Judah. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to transform them from Israelite young men into Babylonian young men. Nebuchadnezzar was a good deal more savvy than the Pharaoh of Egypt was in the days of Joseph, after Joseph, the days of Moses. Pharaoh just made slaves of everybody. Nebuchadnezzar had a very, very bright idea. He was going to take the cream of the crop from all the nations he conquered, take the best of the youths, and they would be his future leaders and captains and rulers in his grand worldwide Babylonian empire. And for that reason, they had to have everything of Israel and Judah evacuated from them, and they were to be filled with everything Babylonian, everything Chaldean. They were to be utterly assimilated into that new Babylonian culture. But Daniel was given wisdom, wisdom beyond his years, godly wisdom, supernatural wisdom, Christ-like wisdom, wisdom to select one specific aspect of his new life in which he was going to contend, where he was going to make a stand. Now, if you can imagine being Daniel for a moment, there are so many things that have changed. And we're told in particular that there were three areas where Daniel and his friends, they underwent a, a massive quantum shift in culture at this tender age. They were given new names. Now, a new name is pretty radical, isn't it? Imagine if someone told you, no, you're not going to be called by your name any longer. I don't just mean getting married and changing your surname. I mean, that's bad enough, isn't it, for the ladies here. But imagine if your, if your first name was changed. Your, every name was changed. It's huge. It's, you're a new person. His education was changed. Imagine Daniel's timetable for his lessons throughout the week. Period one. Babylonian language, period two, Babylonian literature, period three, Chaldean history, Chaldean architecture, Chaldean mythology, Babylonian cuisine. I don't know what he learned there. Come to that in a moment, the cuisine, won't we? <laughs> and he could have protested about any of these things, couldn't he? He could have said, all this Chaldean stuff really stinks. I hate it. I'm going to kick up a fuss about so many things going on in my new life. He could have gone to, his, to the guard who was watching over them and said, look, I've got a list of grievances about the way things are, I'm not going to stand for it. I don't want to be called Belteshazzar. My name's Daniel. I'm not going to learn all your Babylonian mythology and theology and polytheology. I, I don't want to know about Bel and Nebo and all these. I'm a, I only want to study the scriptures of, the, of Moses. I'm not doing anything else. Daniel could have come across as a really stroppy, discontented, boorish teenager. Not the teenagers are like that, of course, you know. We know they're not, but he could have been like that. But instead, Daniel chose to focus on just one area and to pursue it wholeheartedly. And as the Lord's people living in an age which in many ways is as alien for us as Babylon was to Nebuchadnezzar in all sorts of different ways, as Babylon was to Daniel, rather. We should choose our battles carefully. We should give much thought and prayer to receiving wisdom 
to know the particular line in the sand we choose to draw as we live as Christians in a world that will be more or less hostile to us. Daniel resolved one thing, that he would not eat the food or drink the wine that was given to him and to his three companions. And in our own time, in our own age, in our own context, we need to discover and pray for and speak about and gain the wisdom we need to draw certain lines in the sand. There was something you see for Daniel about the food that he ate. For Israelites, the food they ate was such a key, uh, distinctive identifier of the fact that they were a chosen, select, elect, special people. If I were pressed on this, I would simply say the one thing that we must absolutely stick to is what's already been shared this evening. It is that we stand upon the word of God. It is that we, we want to make that word of God known. We want to declare and be allowed to declare that there is but one way, one truth, one life, and that is Jesus Christ. We must not become compromised in these areas. But let me say more about Daniel. We see that Daniel's conduct was courteous, pleasant, peaceable. Daniel asked. Daniel did not insist. Daniel was persistent whilst remaining peaceable. He was persistent all right. When his approach to the senior official failed, Daniel spoke to the guard who was set over him and his friends. It's true, isn't it? If you don't ask, you don't get. But if you don't ask nicely, <laughs> you won't always get either. Daniel had resolved in his own mind. There was a resolution there that was, as I've said already, utterly Christ-like. It was given him by the Holy Spirit. But his resolve did not mean that he became argumentative or insistent in a way that made him become a nuisance. Maybe you remember Aesop's fables and the uh, fable about the wind and the sun having a competition. They're going to try and make a man take his cloak off. And uh, the wind has a go first. I'll make him take his cloak off. I'll blow as hard as I can. And he blows and blows. Force 12 hurricane blowing upon this man. But he just wraps his cloak around him tighter and tighter, doesn't he? And the sun comes out. And after a while, the man just takes off his coat and he carries it. And the moral of that story, in case you're wondering, is this, that force and brute force and sheer argumentation is often less likely to achieve the desired result than gracious, peaceable, wise persistence. Because I think about it, the sun often shines for longer periods of time than the wind blows. But the same can be seen in other examples of godly people. David. David en route to give uh, Nabal a bit of a lesson who had denied his men sustenance. Going to sort him out. 1 Samuel 25 and Abigail so gentle, so courteous, so persistent, so wise in reasoning with David and dissuading him from an action that would have been very, very foolish indeed. 
Paul in front of the Roman authorities. He is persistent. He doesn't back down. Neither should we. But he speaks with respect. I am not mad, most noble Festus, he says, Acts 26. James says in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, said our Lord. There are many occasions, aren't there, even in church life, and perhaps especially in church life, where there is such a profound need for peaceable wisdom. One area of that might be even in church meetings. But I know that in some cases, church meetings can be a real battleground for folk, can't they? And people will come and say, this is a business meeting. And they put on their business hats and they have their hard business noses and they forget that they're the Lord's people. Now, I'm not saying that we should be lily-livered or compromised, anything like that. We need to be strong and clear and be men and women of convictions. But to do so in the Lord's way. Why do we need this type of wisdom that I've referred to? Well, it's because, as I've already said, the relationship between believers and those outside the church is always changing, always fluctuating, never the same from year to year. What was possible in 17th century England would be unimaginable today. And it's an anachronism to try and import the same battles from then to now. Everything's changed. Most things have changed. Not everything's changed. People are still sinners. People still need the gospel. God hasn't changed. But much of the furniture around the room, as it were, has changed. Should the civil magistrate today take order that unity be preserved in the church? That was a live debate in the 1640s, but it wouldn't apply today in the same way. I don't think. And certainly not in other nations. Even if there are principles there that may still apply. Here's one that's been discussed recently. Should a nurse pray with a patient in hospital? If the nurse knows that this patient is a fellow believer, a fellow church member, if this nurse knows that it would be of great comfort to this patient that the nurse should pray with that patient, he or she may well choose to pray with that patient. There is no law to stop them. There should be no law to stop them. But if the patient is unchurched or likely to be hostile, then it would be foolishness for the nurse, perhaps, uh, to pray openly or to say they're going to pray for that patient. I'm simply making the point, without lapsing into a kind of situational ethics approach, that some circumstances do alter the cases that we have to face. We need to understand that. And we need to know the landscape of where we are now. But I want to make two further points before I close. The first is, a, I hope, a realistic warning. The second is, I think, our very greatest encouragement. 
And the warning is this. We need to appreciate that the world is always, to a greater or lesser extent, at enmity with the church. And that, of course, is the context in which the New Testament was written. That does not in any sense detract from Paul's instructions as an apostle to say, be subject to the governing authorities. Oh, we must. They remain God's servants, God's ministers. But the expectation that runs alongside that so prominently in the New Testament, of course, is that there will be hostility and times of persecution. It happened then. It's happened in waves ever since. It's happening now on an unprecedented scale, as we are very well aware in so many countries of this world. But what should our attitude be towards that hostility and that enmity? Paul and his companions suffered persecution, imprisonment, stripes, floggings, beatings. Many of the apostles were martyred. We know that, don't we? Paul himself was at the end. But what we see coming through from Paul time and time again is this. Fellow believers, all Christians, ought not to be ashamed of his sufferings. Do you remember that melancholy ending of 2 Timothy in chapter 4 where Paul laments that Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me, gone to Thessalonica. What was it, do we speculate, that made Demas act in this way? It was quite probably exactly this, that he was ashamed of the fact that this Paul was in prison and was regarded as being uh, a criminal, a member, as it were, of the underclass publicly. Paul was at great pains to give an utterly different take on things. Paul was an inspired and infallible apostle, but you hear him saying, don't you, in front of Festus and Agrippa, I wish you were just as I am apart from these chains. He wasn't keen on the chains at the time, but there came a point later on when he was in Rome, and he says in Philippians 1 verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And that's his concern, not his outward success, not his comfort, not his worldwide fame and popularity, not even the number of converts he's gained, although, of course, he always has an eye to the spread of the gospel and to the glory of God. And in the same vein, the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 12 onwards, writing to a number of people who, like Demas perhaps, were anxious and fearful and even ashamed of what might come upon them, he says these things as he comes to the end of his letter. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I've often sat where all of you are here in years gone by, not for a number of years now, of course, and it's great to come back and see so many new faces among the staff of the Christian Institute. I can remember being invited by John and by Colin to a meeting of the Christian Institute. It was a breakfast meeting at Emmanuel College almost 20 years ago. And I think the number of staff then was only three or four strong. 
It was a, an infant organization. And how the Lord has blessed the Christian Institute. And how we should give praise and thanks and glory to God for the great good that has been done. But with that, let's add something which is no contradiction, but rather a, a cautionary warning perhaps. Is our ultimate joy or satisfaction dependent on such things as that success? What if the Christian Institute became the target of daily lampooning in the national press? And I mean an object of ridicule that you couldn't turn to any national paper without some jibe being aimed at them. What if all its activities were outlawed? Let me push it further than this. What if all Christian worship and public meetings were stopped by acts of Parliament as they were 350 years ago? Unless they were part of the established church. Would there be disgrace and failure for the Lord's people? Would that be a defeat in our eyes? No. First Peter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? That's no credit to you. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The greatest glory of Christ was Christ crucified. The greatest glory of the church is the church that is in the image of her crucified Lord and Savior, faithful, bold, courageous, resolved, all of those things, giving thanks to God for what we might call successes and victories, but whose great, great desire is to be found faithfully bold, even to suffering. But there's a second thing, an encouragement, which with which I would close. God's people have the promise of his own presence and they depend upon the Lord himself. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples as he was about to leave them and return to glory, Behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And we can, in a sense, go back a few hundred years, back to Daniel again, and see something of that in Daniel's own experience. He made a request which would not have been straightforward for the Babylonian authorities. I'm sure the chief official, when he heard that Daniel wanted these vegetables to eat, would have thought, this is going to be my head coming off before very long. The king might take very great offense. I might be in mortal danger. It's always a risk going against the wishes of a powerful dictator, isn't it? Not that I've ever tried, but uh, some people do. The chief official was a very senior member of the royal court. And he could have said, Daniel, 
jumped up. Israelite kid, what do you think he's saying? No chance. How many high officials in the corridors of power listen to requests from youths, foreign youths, even well-educated and able ones? But we read something which is actually rather striking, that this official was favorably disposed towards Daniel and was even able to speak to Daniel with an openness and an honesty which is breathtaking. Daniel wasn't elbowed aside. Daniel was given attention. And the point is that the Lord had brought this about himself. It says in Psalm 106 and verse 46, He caused them, his people, to be pitied by all those who held them captive. And we find a fulfillment of that in Daniel's experience. And let me make this last observation as we come to the end. It does not belong to the church of Jesus Christ to compel the state to act in what we might call a Christian way or to compel them to pass laws which are favorable to Christians. That is the great difference between Christianity and Islam. Islam employs the power of the sword, jihad, and so forth. Islam threatens. Islam forces. The gospel persuades and relies upon the persuading and convicting and converting power of the Holy Spirit. Our weapons are not worldly, but boy, they are mighty. And this is true of all Christian witness. We cannot command people to become Christians. We can't even in our own native and natural strength keep God's law as we wish we could. We are, and the world is, and everything and everyone is wholly dependent on God and on the Holy Spirit for everything good that we ever receive. Even if acts of parliament existed in this or any other land which were squarely based upon the scriptures and in case you misunderstand me righteous godly laws are good right okay they are they are good and they're worth contending for I mean that but let me add to it this righteous laws alone cannot make people godlier and cannot make them Christians for that we need the presence and power of God we need the Spirit to be working within people, to give them a heart of flesh, to make them new creatures, to give them a desire to love God, to know Him, and to honor Him with their lives. So I trust, friends, brothers and sisters, that you have been informed tonight and warned realistically, but I hope also encouraged. Devastating things have happened this year in our parliament, in this country. We're all aware of what I'm referring to and the Lord has allowed this to happen but we the church are not silenced by anyone and must never be silenced and the church of Jesus Christ will never perish from this earth the gates of hell will not prevail against it and therefore as the Lord's people we have yet more motivation to seek the Lord to bring his word, to bring his truth, to apply to the whole of life, seeking the godly wisdom 
that we see in Daniel and that we see, of course, in our Lord Jesus himself. I've enjoyed the talk. It's been very thought-provoking. It's made me think of the suffragettes who had a worthy cause, although some people even today may disagree with that. And they embarked upon a campaign of civil disobedience to achieve their goal. If we continue to have this deluge of anti-godly legislation heaped upon us, I'm wondering, will there not come a point of time in the future where we embark on some more dramatic way of bringing attention to these issues? I'm thinking of Christ in the temple who drove out the money changers, who I believe had a lawful right to be there. And if that wasn't unlawful, it was by the authority of the day. So I wonder, will there come a time when, do you think there will ever come a time when Christians will take more direct action to prove their point, to bring attention to these very big issues of the day? Thank you. I think I would say that civil disobedience is only warranted when there is a very clear conflict between what we're commanded to do by the state and what we're commanded to do by the Lord. And clearly the apostles engaged in that as well when they preached Jesus Christ, though they'd been forbade to do so by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 and 5. So uh, disobedience to the state because we're obeying God who is the higher authority is absolutely justified. The suffragettes, well, I'm not sure about some of the means. Um, that's a very interesting area, isn't it? I mean, I don't think there'd be many here today who would say that women shouldn't have the vote now. Although I don't know, in, you know, in these sorts of circles, you never know who might have these. But even when we do disobey, there must still be, I know Christ was not sort of um, meek and, uh, and withdrawn and sort of... Um, tiptoeing around the temple when he drove them out. But there is a difference there in that you know, he is the Lord of the temple coming to his temple and he's fulfilling prophecy there. And I'm not sure we quite are entitled to do things that, that are parallel to that. I would simply say that if we are to be disobedient, then there should be in the very character of our disobedience a Christ-like quality. I mean, you know, you go back to the 17th century and to the way that the, uh, many of the uh, Puritans at the time, they got rid of the king and they executed the king. And uh, that's about as sort of as extreme and as sharp end as it gets. Uh, I don't really want to be drawn into that debate this evening. I would simply say, we don't rely on the sword. Our Lord said, put away your sword. My kingdom is not of this world. That doesn't mean that we don't engage in what might be called political matters. We do. Um, there's a sense in which we are all engaged in politics, if not necessarily party politics. But the manner of our involvement must be distinctively as, as Christ has instructed us to be. We're not under the state as we are under God. Uh, you think of the temple tax and Peter coming to Jesus with that question and, and Jesus saying, well, the sons of the kingdom are free. But we pay the temple tax so as not to give offense to anybody. And so we ought not to put unnecessary stumbling blocks in people's way when we, as from time to time we do, disobey. I'm thinking, for example, I mean, we know what's happened with gay marriage, and 
one thing which I raised with my own MP but never got an answer from was, was not simply about marriage itself but the right of the Christian church to teach and proclaim that marriage was between one man and one woman. That is the right that we have to contend for whatever happens in the law. We have to say the Bible says this is the way it is and you can't stop us from doing that. Now the way we do it can be, could be, could be done in a more aggressive way or a more peaceable way, couldn't it? Some preachers, uh, it depends on temperament, they will be more extrovert, more of the John Knox variety than others. And that's right and good. But even there, we have to say, what context are we in? How will we be understood or misunderstood? So civil disobedience, in some cases, yes. But the way we do it, that's where we need the wisdom of a man like Daniel. That'd be my answer, I think. Your neighbor, with whom you have very good relationships, Right. says to you, um, authority of God, Saddam Hussein, Hitler, all the crimes in mm. Somalia, and mm. so on and so mm. forth. How do you answer that and retain a peaceful relationship with your neighbor? Well, I think that may not be the first thing that I would discuss with my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure he would necessarily throw it at me it depends on what I've said to him so far. I think it might come up, though, if my neighbor happened to come along to a church service because he was interested and he heard me preach from Romans 13, and then he raised those things. So I, mean, I think your question is, how do you actually pick up on that issue? And I think all you can really do is say, well, what is so clear from the New Testament is that the authorities who are named there, and they include the Pharisees, and they include Herod, and they include Pilate, and they include Nero, and they include all manner of men who shed blood. But when Paul says that these are ministers of God, servants of God, he's not saying apart from A, B, C, D, E, F, G. He's saying these included. Um, now, that's, that's the answer to the question. How do you get it across to a neighbor who is unbelieving? Well, I think somebody who is, who is new to these things is not going to accept that. Just have to face that fact. There, you know, there are many things that people will, will hear and they won't accept them straight away and it'll take them time to accept them. They've got to come to faith first. I was preaching on the subject of, of creation some years ago and uh, we tried to get people to come in. I mean, Shrewsbury is the birthplace of Darwin and a very Darwinian town. And, uh, uh, and this man came in and listened to me preach from Genesis 1 and, and he said to me at the end, I'm really, really bewildered and confused. I mean... For years I've been a music teacher, I've been doing Christmas concerts, Easter concerts, I've been singing these hymns, and, and now you've told me that I have to believe that Genesis is literal, and uh, I, I don't think I can really carry on with my involvement in, you know, being a choir master or whatever with these Christian lyrics and so forth. And I think the answer is, he wasn't at that stage ready for the teaching of Genesis. And our neighbors may not be ready to hear what we've got to say about matters of the kind that you've raised. We hold them and we try and look for a way to come at them wisely and peaceably. But we've, it's what I said towards the end. We live in a world that is more or less hostile. And sometimes I think because people don't accept our message, we think we've failed. That's not true at all, is it? You know, very often when we're being faithful, people will oppose us all the more. So he may struggle with that. I think the issue is whether we understand that. You know, Scripture says that these people, whoever they are, yes, they are God's appointed servants. Well, thank you very much for what you said about Daniel. There is another factor in the chapter that you probably have noticed anyway, 
um, there was not only the wisdom and courtesy of Daniel in his approach to the Babylonian officials, but God gave him a favor. Yeah. And it's the sovereignty of God we must ultimately rely upon to reverse the situation mm, mm, mm. that we face. Yes. Does that help? I possibly alluded to that towards the end. I mean, certainly, when we speak of God's goodness, we're talking about his common grace and his saving grace. And both are necessary and active in this world. And it was by God's common grace that Daniel was given this reception by the officials who were there in Babylon. As we quoted from Psalm 106, he gave them, he caused them to be pitied by those who held them captive. Uh, so the fact that there is a peaceable environment that we live in where we can meet, where we can preach, where we can worship, where we are not as the back streets of Homs or Damascus or anywhere like that at the moment is all due to the sovereign goodness of our God. That's absolutely right. And it's something we don't sufficiently remember and give thanks for. Very often in many churches, it's never mentioned mm. at all. Mm. We know what saving grace is, yeah. Yeah. but how does it relate to common grace? The great, central, prominent plan of God in this whole universe is the salvation of his people in Christ and the whole redemption of the entire cosmos, Romans 8 and so forth. That is what history is working towards. History is his story, as I'm sure we've, we all know. But the environment within that saving grace of the gospel is, is made known and is effective is an environment where God restrains evil. Common grace is that which prevents the world from becoming a very pandemonium. If there were no common grace, then no marriages would last, and nobody would ever get married, and, or all sorts of things would be allowed. If there were no common grace, there would be anarchy. There would be no law courts. There would be no decency of any kind. Every human being would be as bad as they could be. That would be the tendency, at least, without common grace. Common grace is that which restrains evil and actually gives a security and, and a peacefulness and a peaceableness to many, many societies. Common grace is what kept this country, this is an interesting question, is it common grace or saving grace, but you know, Christian standards, the Bible being opened, uh, Christian worship in schools was widespread, it was the done thing. It's not there anymore. I've thought of another quote from Churchill. Um, I think Churchill said at one point, although he wasn't actually a true I mean, he had certain beliefs, but he didn't regard himself as being a thoroughgoing churchman. But he said he's like one of those flying buttresses which holds up the church in a great cathedral. That is, he supports the church. He sees the good that the church does to a society. And that kind of view from Churchill is an outcome of common grace. The fact that our nation won the war, you could say, is common grace. It's not different to saving grace and it's a, a different beast. It's the wider environment within which saving grace operates. Thank you for your talk tonight. It's been very um, broad um, and quite all-encompassing in a way. Um, I've read about a, a surveys that have taken place um, by someone called Christian Smith about why people are leaving the evangelical church in 
um, and particularly young people are leaving the evangelical church in America. And the phrase that has, or the phrases that have been coming about from that is that basically they believed that Christianity was moralistic, therapeutic deism. Seems to be a tension between the old law and gospel in what the Christian Institute and the church is doing. There can be a danger that Christianity is seen solely or primarily about morals. And freedom of speech, yes, and, and please hear me clearly, I do accept that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, and I do accept the moralistic and the morals that are required of Christians. There it seems to be a tension that sometimes it can enhance people's pre-existing prejudices that Christianity is purely about morals, although they don't seem to come to that conclusion for Islam. And of course the answer to that latter question is that the moral law is good. Paul says the law is good. And as Christians we, we uphold the law, we love the law, by God's grace we keep the law. But of course the Christian message does not climax with mere morality. Um, it tells us that we are unable to keep the law. It tells us we are broken and fallen sinners. It has to have that at its very heart. It has to say that the coming of the Son of God into this world is absolutely necessary to repair broken, fallen, and lost human nature. However, that doesn't give us license then to sin. You know, Paul responds with the utmost horror, doesn't he, to the idea that we can sin because grace abounds. I think we always have to watch the, the tensions and the, um, the points at which we preach the law. Why do we preach the law? We should preach the law to bring people to a conviction of their sin and to see that they are hopeless and helpless by themselves. We then preach that the Son of God died for sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. But then, of course, we also preach that as the Lord's people, we love the law and we keep the law. But the Christian message is not and must never become primarily um, therapeutic or moralistic deism. That's what it, I'm not sure about therapeutic, but it became certainly moralistic at various points in, in the past. In the 18th century, it began to become um, a moralistic, rationalistic deism. There's nothing saving in that. The saving message is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ did not die in vain. He died to make me into a new creature, to begin a new creation of men and women who love God and love his law. Thank you for what you've said tonight. You've encouraged us to be uh, realistic, mm -hmm. to understand that the natural order of things is for the world to be at enmity with the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the kingdom of God to be cosmic in its scope, certainly at the end of time, but now in this tension between now and then, certainly located within the church as the church. Uh, you've encouraged us to think about the fact that as citizens, uh, and as, as Christians, we are citizens of heaven, but we remain citizens of whatever nation state we are in. Yeah. So for most of us, citizens of this country. Um, I suppose the thing I wrestle with, and, and this is where my question is, when a lot of Christians hear those things, they, they take those things, the, 
the fact that the world can't be redeemed, the fact that there ought to be a separation between church and state, and they think, therefore, I will not be a citizen in the state, I'll just be a -hmm. citizen in the church, and Mm -hmm. I'll utterly disengage. Mm. And we've seen that in church history as well. And it's also a danger today, particularly as the attack becomes more and more severe, is that Christians can form a holy huddle and just utterly disengage from being citizens in this world. The book of Daniel continues, doesn't it? And Daniel becomes third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel becomes the chief of the ministers in the reign of Darius. And like Joseph before him, and like Nehemiah and others we could mention, Daniel isn't by no means somebody who disengages and goes his own separate way and says church and state are separate. And therefore Christians should, well as we often hear from these platforms, seek the peace of the city that they are in. And that means be involved and be engaged. And the great thing is this, Daniel as an old man in his 80s it seems, was not one whit compromised by his association with Babylonian, Median, Persian kings. He was in the lion's den because he refused to worship Darius as God. He remained faithful. And I think when I look at the Christian Institute, this isn't meant to flatter anybody, by the way, but, you know, a body which is faithful and the Lord has blessed, and not just numerically and in terms of successes, but in in maintaining that biblical witness, but at the same time in being utterly committed and engaged to this present world. We are not just twiddling our thumbs waiting to go to glory. God made this world. God established states and governments and rule and authority and God said that these things are good. They've become flawed and they've become broken. Whatever we find to do, do it with all our might, whether we are a governor in a local school, whether we are in some residence association, whatever we can do, We can write to our MPs. We can do all these things. There's nowhere off limits, in a sense, for a Christian. This world is our parish, uh, in a sense. So I certainly wouldn't want to give the impression that we are to disengage because Daniel never disengaged, and neither should we. And there are New Testament examples even of people that were engaged in political and um, courtly affairs. I always think about civil disobedience. There's a huge onus in Romans 13, and in other passages too, to be obedient. Quite. And uh, the slave is not told to escape. And uh, so it seems that the pains and penalties that the state could exact upon Christians is, could be quite close to home, even effectively allowing, not saying slavery was right, if you could get your freedom, hmm. obtain it. Hmm. And, of course, it was Christians that led to the abolition of slavery. Yeah. Um, but, um, the, as you were saying, that there is a difference between putting up with things that are not to our convenience and actually being told or required to do something was directly against yes. what God has required. Yes, yes. And uh, slaves were not told, Christian slaves were not told to start a revolution. No. Um, no. But they were told to be obedient to their masters not only when his eye is on you but when he's uh, not there as well Um, and yet they had to be obedient I'm sure you're you're aware of the important distinction there is between a Christian and the the church itself between an individual Christian Mm. Um, and I'm referring to your uh, comments about their good neighbours 
the church is a good neighbor to the state or should be a good neighbor yeah. to the state yeah. likewise in the other direction but for the individual christian he may not be uh, just in the church in that house he is in the other house as well mm -hmm. uh, in the state so mm -hmm. how does the fact that we are subjects of the state how does that affect the way in which the individual christian is going to differ uh, from the church as a body acting with regard to the state. I think that there's a sense in which Daniel became that individual, albeit he had three friends. And in a sense, the church of God seems virtually to have shrunk to that tiny number of young men, as far as we know it at the time. And I think the encouragement there is that the Lord who undertook for Daniel in that alien situation will undertake for us as well wherever we are and give us that wisdom. Clearly if we're in an organization where there are certain rules and uh, principles which we are contracted to abide by, it's extremely difficult for us to go against those and to be disobedient. I mean I'm thinking of okay so if a Christian is going into a certain area of work where there may be compromises that come up there that are likely to surface. He's, he's got to do his homework beforehand and make sure that um, he's got an answer for them, really, I suppose. You could, you could say that. There is, nevertheless, isn't there, there's a chain of command in, uh, in the military, in, in many establishments, and if we sign up to something, we have to do what those over us tell us to do. And I, th I think, you know, if we consider Daniel or we consider um, Naaman, you know, um, there would have been decisions and actions they would have taken that, that would have been very, very difficult and very, very tricky. But even in the act of submission within that organization, there is a Christ-like witness. And I think the point that Colin was making ties in with this. We are to bear the image of Christ before the world, aren't we? And before one another and before the Lord himself. Even when doing those things which we don't find comfortable and wouldn't do if it was all up to us, I want to say thank you to Paul for his very thoughtful talk and the way in which he's answered questions.